Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture. I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi. We uh, solicited some mailbag questions for this week. Um, We're reaching a point in the Oscar race where, I don't know, it it feels like there's a lot of questions out there. There's some things that feel solid. There's some movies we haven't seen yet. Um, And I think we feel like there's a lot of things settled that maybe not everybody is aware of yet. So we're going to answer a whole bunch of listener questions. Um, we're going to talk about the Best Director race and about the International Feature race. And then at the end of the show, you'll hear our colleague Cassie DaCosta talking to Ruth Nega, the star of Passing, which will be on Netflix uh, as of the end of this week, I believe. Um, and everyone should watch it. I know we've talked about it a lot as uh, ever since Sundance many months ago. Um, so before we get to your many wonderful questions that you sent in, um, as we we talked about Best Actor and Best Actress last week. It felt like maybe a good time to dive into Best Director, which we have not talked about, I don't think, specifically at all. We did get one listener question about it um, from Michael Hageter, who asked, does Ridley get in for director and for which movie? I think we can get to the Ridley Scott of it all in a minute. But, um, David, I think you talked to the runaway Best Director favorite many months ago when you've been on the beat. So why is Jane Campion going to win Best Director, David? Um, first of all, we know the directing branch likes big swings and the power of the dog is nothing if not that um it looks incredible it's the most critically acclaimed film in the race of the year as of right now which never hurts in the best director race is that going off what metacritic scores what's that what's that yeah i'm I'm going off metacritic there um i mean you have stuff like you know in the more specialty area but i don't think that those are going to you know, factor as much in like the souvenir part two, which is a phenomenal movie, but um, won't be winning best director. Um, uh, And, and it's got the backing of Netflix. And the other half of that is you have uh, a great narrative with Jane Campion, who is uh, one of the best filmmakers of her generation. She was the second woman ever nominated for the best director Oscar. She won best original screenplay for the piano many decades ago. This is her best film in a, in a long time and, and certainly her most high profile, I would say since the piano. And I don't believe that a real challenger has emerged to overtake her. I think that 
She's also extremely good in a room, working, uh, talking to people. She's very warm and funny and a little offbeat, which always helps. And um, yeah, I think she's the clear favorite right now. So, Rebecca, if there were to be uh, someone to come up and challenge her, assuming you agree with David that she's the front runner, um, who would that challenger be? I think it's Kenneth Branagh. Um, he is also really, really good in a room, obviously a very charming actor. Um, when we were at Telluride, I saw him at this brunch they have, just like there was a line of women who wanted to meet him. <laughs> and he was very kindly spending a lot of time like you know, greeting everyone. And I think he's really, really good at that. And, um, you know, Belfast is is definitely um, a front runner in, in a lot of ways and has had a really strong run so far. So to me, if anyone I think can give Jane a run for her money, it, it's it's him for sure. I will have you know, Rebecca, that at the Power of the Dog brunch, there were a line of gay men who, meet, who, who were very excited to meet Jane Campion. So she's she's right there with you. The, the, the two key demographics of Academy voters are well covered here. You know, we talk all the time about how um, how much the Academy loves actors turned directors. Uh, you know, us children of the 90s thinking of the Kevin Costner era. But it has been since Clint Eastwood in 2004 that an actor turned director has won Best Director. So maybe this is Kenneth Branagh's turn to, uh, to take his spot there. Um, Richard, who were you lined up to meet at a Telluride brunch? Oh, everybody, honey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I have a prediction that uh, runs contrary to both Rebecca and David's in that I think given its thus far financial success and seemingly wide, well-greeted, you know, reception when it came out, I think Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve is going to win. Uh, or, win. At least, wow. or at least stands a really strong chance because I think a lot of this year, as I see it, is about Hollywood rebuilding itself, reclaiming its status. You know, yes, Dune is also on HBO Max, but like theatrical, theatrical, theatrical. And I just think like giving the best director prize to a movie tons of people have seen is a good way to do that. Justice Will Smith winning an Oscar will be. So I think there could be a sort of populist, maximalist sentiment. And Villeneuve has been arguably like due or at least, you know, He's been one of those sort of more lauded commercial directors in recent years. Um, and if he beat Christopher Nolan to an Oscar, I think that'd be kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Nolan will be angrier than anyone alive. I can imagine that. <laughs> You do think about his nomination for Arrival, which we all remember famously snubbed Amy Adams, but uh, he got in for that as well as for Best Picture. So he does seem like not the heir apparent to Christopher Nolan because he's still alive and well and doing great work. But like he is the new version of the Academy favorite who can make big, gigantic movies that get their attention. So I think it's a decent bet. I would say he's probably my number two as well. I mean, if you think about when the branch diverges from Best Picture, this feels like a year where that would happen. I mean, I don't know that Belfast or, or King Richard, which I think is a stronger Best Picture player than people are giving it credit for, are necessarily as strong in the director race where they tend to um, veer off into more, you know, auteur focused directions um, where applicable. And um, the other big question mark of this race, which we can get into, is you have a lot of really big you know, factors in this race historically who have films that have yet to be screened yes. um, that could easily complicate things. <laughs> yeah. If you go through uh, the Gold Derby list, there's a lot of people kind of taking a swing on saying it'll be Paul Thomas Anderson, it'll be Guillermo del Toro or Ridley Scott and Hal Suguchi. Um But it's such a question mark, you know, Steven Spielberg's out there with uh, West Side Story, even if it's not being as widely predicted. So it is it does feel like unusually late, you know, be to be here in the beginning of November and still have that many question marks waiting for us. 
The other big question that I have, again, looking through Gold Derby things, is you see uh, various combinations of Pedro Almodovar and Oscar Farhadi showing up in the Best Director list. And um, we've talked about this a good bit, and we're talking about international submissions in a minute, David, but the the way that the director's branch has been very fond of international directors. Um, both of them have been nominated before. Uh, Pedro Almodovar won in the screenplay category. It does seem like one or both of them could easily get in this lineup to me. I think so, too, especially since... I think for Farhadi, there is an understanding um, among Amazon, who's backing the film, and strategists working on the film, that he's never been nominated for Best Director, unlike a Moldovar. And um, given his stature, uh, having directed two Best International Features uh, at the Oscars, he, he is a little bit due for that. And the film is playing really well where it needs to, even if it's not his, you know, it's not getting the kinds of reviews that a separation got. There's There's a sense that this would be the film to sort of get him to that next level of Oscar recognition, given the combination of factors you just mentioned, Katie. The the globalization of the Academy is is one element where when you look at the director race, it's, you have to take it into account because um, it's pretty rare for it not to impact at least one of the nominations. Yeah. And that's where we get a lot of those surprises in the director category, too. You know, with the with the five lineup, we often think that we know exactly what's going to happen. And then Pawel Polakowski shows up and you're like, OK, wow, this is uh, this is possible. This is a, a very different branch than maybe it was uh, in, in the Mel Gibson heyday <laughs> to, to go back to the actors turned directors. Yeah. <laughs> um, given that last year we had history with uh, Clojal and Emerald Fennell both being nominated and there are a lot of female directors out this year. How optimistic do we feel that maybe there could be two women in this lineup again? It's such a competitive race. And as David mentioned, there are a bunch of films we still haven't seen or, or, or heard about yet. So, I mean, I think um, I would be really excited if Maggie Gyllenhaal could, you know, make it into the nominee list for The Lost Daughter. I think, you know, she really delivered a very strong directorial debut. And, you know, I really love that film. So I do think there's a possibility. She's also, of course, an actor turned director and, you know, very good in a room. So, um, and definitely campaigning. So, you know, I think she's the probably second most likely woman to end up in there. I, I'm not sure it's going to be as gender diverse as it was last year, but um, I think she has a chance at this point in the race. What do you guys think? Yeah, I I think that her best bet is probably an adapted screenplay, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have the question now is, this is Netflix with both Jane Campion's film and Maggie Gyllenhaal's film. Um, And Rebecca Hall's film. And Rebecca Hall's film. So like, where does campaign effort go? Where does campaign money go? I don't know. I feel like they could maybe split it and be like, we'll try to get Campion the director. We'll try to get Gyllenhaal the screenplay, which would be a coup unto itself, you know. But or maybe they just I don't know, maybe they they they, they work a multiple front, you know, attack or something and, and, and they get both or maybe even all three in there. Um, but I think that's probably a, a steeper mountain to climb than just kind of like focusing on Campion. If there is one category where Titan could mm-hmm. get a very surprise nomination, <laughs> yeah. I think it's here. I don't think we should underestimate this branch's um, penchant for surprise. And, and the movie is certainly a lot of directing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, to simplify, to oversimplify things, and um, I know Neon is is targeting it uh, as a, as a potential spoiler here. Okay. In addition to Julia Darkornow, any other uh, Dark Horse uh, favorites or uh, spoilers to potentially look out for that you guys have in mind? I was thinking about Shane Hader, director of Coda, uh, which is kind of the crowd pleaser that we've all been waiting to take off more, and it might just be too little seen at this point. But uh, she seems like an interesting one. Anyone else got one? 
I, you know, just kind of perusing prediction sites and stuff. I think it's interesting. I see Reynaldo Marcus Green listed a few times, uh, who directed King Richard. And I think that if there's a broad sweep of support for that movie, uh, Green could get included in that because it is, it is a directed movie. I mean, you know, like you could look at King Richard and say, oh, that's just about, you know, these two big performances with Will Smith and Anjanou Ellis, really this one towering performance in Will Smith. But what Reynaldo Marcus Green does with the film is to make it something more than just your standard biopic with a big performance at the center. Um, he really like teases out a lot of extra detail and texture and life. And um, so that could be something that gets recognized, especially if King Richard like gets the best picture nomination and, you know, kind of Anjanou Ellis gets in and there's a, you know, broad support for that film. Yeah. Yeah. I think she, I, I think uh, he has a really good shot of getting nominated. My, my dark horse would be Spencer and Pablo Lorraine. I think <laughs> this movie beyond Kristen Stewart, I, I is my biggest mystery. I really don't know how it's going to play um, and how far it can go, but it's extremely stylized, um, really ambitious movie that I think if anyone would put a stamp of approval on it uh, of the Academy branches, it would probably be the directing branch. The beyond your confidence that Kristen Stewart will be nominated. Just to, yeah, 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 exactly. Just to be clear. Uh, Rebecca, any dark horses from you? This is not a dark horse, but I think once we all get to see Nightmare Alley, which none of us have yet, uh, I think Guillermo will will rise to the top of the list. I mean, he obviously won for Shape of Water, and I think that was a less traditional Oscar-y movie than this one is. So saying this, having not seen the movie at all, I do I do think he's he's my not dark horse, just late horse, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too. I don't want to talk too much about Nightmare Alley because, again, we haven't seen it. But one of the listener questions to jump ahead was saying, do you think Bradley Cooper will be Will Smith's biggest competition? Uh, Nightmare Alley would be his ninth nomination. I like that theory. I think that'd be a fun shakeup to this race. But I, I think also the Academy recognizing a movie that's about a former Cheers star's opinion on vaccinations. I, I, I don't know if, <laughs> if Nightmare Alley is really going to sell to you know your average Academy voter in that way. But we'll see. <laughs> OK, David, as I mentioned, uh, you're writing this week about the the state of the international feature uh, category submissions, which um, and we, we can do a very brief reminder of how it works. But basically, each individual country is responsible for choosing one movie that will represent them at the Oscars and then the, um, the branch voters at the Academy get to choose from there. And, uh, you know, famously, many times these countries have seemingly chosen the wrong movie or they have a really tough decision to make between two very popular movies. So what are the kind of surprises or the really strong contenders you're seeing in this year's crop? Um, well, we talked about a few uh, when talking about the directors. A Hero is Iran's submission directed by Asghar Farhadi. That's probably a kind of de facto frontrunner along with The Hand of God, uh, which is Italy's selection um, from Netflix's Paolo Sorrentino film. Both Paolo Sorrentino and Asghar Farhadi have won this category before. Rather infamously already, Pedro Moldovar's Parallel Mothers was not selected by Spain. Uh, instead, they went for The Good Boss, which is a comedy starring Javier Bardem that I have not seen. I find that hilarious, though, that like Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem are just, like the most famous actors in Spain, presumably, just were up against each other this time and, and are married to each other. Also, I don't know the fine details of this, but I do know that when Amaldivar was nominated for director and screenplay for Talk to Her, Spain did not select the movie and instead went with a film starring Javier Bardem. So if history is repeating itself, that's very good news for a Moldovar outside of this category. Yes. Um, but, it, you know, beyond those flashier titles, I think that there's a lot of really interesting players in the race. Uh, Columbia's submission is Memoria, um, which stars Tilda Swinton. 
uh, who experiences and who plays an expatriate facing a kind of haunting. <laughs> and, and that film also got some attention for its ambitious theatrical rollout where I believe it's like an endless one day, one city run or something along those lines. And Neon's handling that one. Yeah. Neon's got a lot. Um, and there's also Germany's I'm Your Man, which stars Dan Stevens as a hot robot. And <laughs> you, and one, one film we've talked a lot about is Flea, um, which I'm really excited about um, because it would continue in the suddenly new tradition of the Oscars uh, for foreign language documentaries, finding embrace in both this international feature category and the documentary category. This is Danish the Danish submission. Um, and it's a really beautiful film that premiered at Sundance and has gotten a very aggressive push all fall by neon around the world. And I think uh, has a really good shot at cracking this um, doc and a few other categories because it's also animated and getting a best picture campaign. Yeah, David, we were talking about this last week that uh, I, I think I'm going to try it. Honeyland, but it was the first uh, document, first film to be nominated in both foreign language film and documentary. And then the very next year, Collective did the exact same thing from Romania. And now Flea yep. is extremely likely to do it again, like a three in a row when it's never happened before. It's so strange how that works. And worth noting that Honeyland was Neon's film. And that was a really coordinated attempt at, at breaking that, you know, being the first to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they are behind this one as well. So they, they know how to get it done. I remember Richard Lawson being a real Honeyland influencer. Like it was on your top 10, Richard. And that's how I started paying attention to it. And the, the Academy followed suit. And I'm now just a honey influencer. If you go to my Instagram, <laughs> I'm just constantly getting stung by bees. Wait, did screaming. you move yeah. into a cave? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I'm coming to you from Macedonia. Um, <laughs> uh, anecdotally, interestingly, um, I've talked to several people recently who watch Collective on airplanes, which feels Ooh, like a very wow. strange thing. But you wonder if like maybe the, the combination of getting not the one nomination, but two, like somehow like puts that in people's minds more. I mean, there was an article in Variety, I think last week about how like, best picture or the Oscar nominations matter in terms of viewership uh, of the films and all that. So like, I would love it if Lee could just like check several boxes um, in order to better ensure that people like it sticks their mind and they, they seek it out on their next cross continent flight. Yeah. Flea would be the first one to do animation, documentary and international. I have to assume. Indeed. Like Waltz with Bashir would be the only one that could have done it and it didn't. Um, yeah, well, there you go. Now the, the the new Triple Crown is is that series of nominations. So many Oscar records to break that we didn't even know existed. Uh, did we mention Titan as also being in the mix uh, as Francis' yeah. submission? And, and that was um, a surprising choice to some because they infamously picked L, the Paul Verhoeven film a few years ago, and, and it didn't even make the short list. Um, so... There was a sense that maybe France would go in a more, you know, a safer direction this time around, given that they had another buzzier, wild film to, you know, on their plate. But they did go with it at one can. And it's got, um, I think, a pretty good chance of getting nominated. One big change to the category worth mentioning is is the way that these are decided. Uh, it used to be a short list of 10 films. That's now been expanded to 15 films, but at the expense of losing what is known in the industry as the save. Um, and the save basically amounts to the International Executive Committee vigorously debating behind closed doors uh, films that did not make the short list on the vote and whether it should be added. There, There's none that are confirmed, but it's a well-known rumor that Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty was not on the initial shortlist mm-hmm. and was saved before going on to win the Oscar. So losing that while still expanding the list could yield some surprising snubs. Um, so that's something to watch out for. 
And then the other one that people should watch out for, and maybe we'll be one of those infamous snubs uh, because we get our hearts broken all the time, but The Worst Person in the World is uh, one of the favorite films of a lot of people I have spoken to, and it's in the mix too, right, David? Yes, it's um, it's the crowd pleaser of the group, um, I, I think it's safe to say, and uh, a nice moment for Joachim Trier, who's most of his past films, at least, if not all of them, had not made up in the Norwegian selection. So this is a nice opportunity for him to break through in this category for the first time with the close of his Oslo trilogy. And one other film I would mention uh, that's a really interesting cross-category contender is Drive My Car, which is Japan's submission. It won Best Screenplay in Cannes and is getting an equivalent push uh, for Adapted at the Oscars since that category is a little thin right now. Um, and that's a, that, that's a really interesting contender that could hit in a few areas. We should clearly do screenplays next week. I feel like we've brought it up a lot. It's uh, it's time. They're weird categories. There's a lot of opportunity for surprise in those. All right. Stay tuned. So to jump into our mailbag now with all of the excellent questions that you guys sent us at Subtext, if you didn't get the message, go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen. You can get texts from us. And um, David, not to make you monologue endlessly, but I feel like you have explained Academy rules best to me of anybody. And Julian has asked, can you explain the best picture lineup? Why is it solidly 10 films again? And, you know, the why of it, we may never really know why, but uh, what's the rule that changed that got us here where we have a full 10 lineup again for the first time since 20... Nine. It was nine, I think. Um, yeah. So, so initially, of course, the best picture. Well, for a long time, was the best picture lineup was five nominees. Then it was expanded to ten, and then we had this awkward uh, balance between five and ten, which usually yielded eight or nine, which was the result of, of multiple rounds of voting and. Uh, the preferential ballot system and basically a movie that had enough number one votes in the first round would be automatically nominated. And then the movie that had enough number two votes. And, and so you had to have enough of a percentage to um, make the cut. And it typically, it almost always yielded the same amount between eight or nine. And it was a little weird. So now we're getting a full 10. And I think the um, conventional wisdom is that that's going to make room for bigger budget movies, more popular movies. But as we've seen with the Academy, especially of late, they can uh, go in the more niche specialized direction too. So I think it'll be interesting to see what kinds of films round it out because of course the PGA 10 would be a good comparison and the PGA always leans more commercial. So how closely the Oscars follow them um, will be interesting to see just as a nice benchmark of where the Academy is right now. Yeah. Um, Richard, as a person who was um, high on Denis, do you feel like um, Dune is the obvious one that's kind of feeling that? I mean, it, I guess at this point it probably would get in even if it was back to eight or nine. But that seems like the, the clear, like big movie that would get in from that, right? I mean, I'll just say like that every prediction I had for Dune, which was that no one would like it, it would flop, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, did not come to pass. Quite the opposite. So um, I now think it could do whatever, you know. Um, yeah. I don't know that it will it would have like the oomph to win. But I think if you have a guaranteed 10, that rule was created partly to include more commercial stuff. So Dune would, you know, uh, seem like the obvious choice for that, um, especially given the, um, let's say, tepid response to Chloe Zhao's Eternals, um, which I think maybe people have been wondering about is if that could, maybe that could be the, the, the big commercial movie that gets into Best Picture. But no, it seems like Dune, you know, for its combination of, I guess, getting the book sort of right or half the book um, and its sort of villain of the artistry. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it feels like it's the zeitgeisty blockbuster, you know, in this lead up to nominations and, and, you know, critics awards and all that stuff. 
Rebecca, what do you see as uh, maybe benefiting from this lineup of 10? Either large size movie or small size movie. You know, the famous Winter's Bone getting a Best Picture nomination back in um, 2010 when this all started. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Dune is is solidly the big blockbuster that gets in. I I mean, it's still, you know, a little weird pandemic uh, time where I feel like we don't actually have that many big blockbusters competing. So I do think Dune is the one. I mean, I think Dune is going to get so many nominations because of all the crafts it's going to get nominated to, uh, nominated for as well. So, um, you know, I think it's going to come out really strong on nominations day. But um, I think if I were picking sort of a uh, something that's going to slip in. I mean, my hope is for Coda. I really loved that movie. And, you know, it came out so early in the race and it's Apple, which I think is still sort of figuring out its um, award strategy. But, you know, I would love if that movie can slip into the top 10 uh, as sort of a smaller, unexpected um, included uh, film. So that that would be my sort of hope. <laughs> We had we had a text from Josh Darby who says, uh, you know, he and his partner were trying to figure out what would be the 10 nominated for Best Picture. And they had a hard time getting to 10 and then asked what we would pick, which I don't know if we need to go down our full lineups. Um, and then also, why are we sure the Green Knight will be snubbed? Uh, and maybe mm-hmm. that's my pick for the odd duck that I hope sneaks in with a 10 because I love the Green Knight so much. Although I get get why it's not for everybody. Um, but it is funny when you start counting to 10, like it feels like you very quickly get to like, well, is that big enough? Or like, is that too strange to get in there? And this just might be the kind of year we have. Like if Dune is the one like crowd pleaser blockbuster and it's Dune <laughs> and like not at all a typical big movie, then I think the choices are going to get kind of um, out there from there. Yeah, I think that's why you can't count out potentially more divisive movies like Spencer or The Lost Daughter. There's one movie that I'm really hoping benefits from this, which is The Harder They Fall, Mm. um, Netflix's uh, starry Western, Um, especially because it reminds me a little bit of the case of Knives Out a couple of years, which was probably the film that missed out um, out of that, you know, it was of the 10, the eight or nine that were nominated. It it was right on the cusp and didn't get in, but it was another fun, big starry ensemble piece that um, critics liked, that was a big commercial play. Uh, and I think Heart of They Fall fits into that in, in an interesting way as well. And, and I do think it could benefit while not being seen taken as seriously from just people having a lot of fun with it and, and, and taking off their support of that. So that's one to look for. But um, I do agree that it's it's <laughs> there's a lot of small critically acclaimed movies that could find their way in just given the nature of the race this year. Yeah, I think one of those could be Mass. Um, which, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps buoyed by like four great performances, but maybe some confusion over like which actor should be, you know, recognized for that. People could just kind of mark it down for best picture because, you know, the thinking, you know, as cynical as it might sound, the thinking is like, well, it's not going to win, but we'll at least, you know, give it the the, the little recognition. Um, and I think when you have a set number of, of nominees, that gives that kind of leeway to be like, well, this isn't really, you know, in the hunt for the actual award, but we want to yeah. like officially recognize it. And I think Mass is kind of a perfect um, film in terms of scale and subject matter and all that to to merit that sort of inclusion. Any strategist will tell you increasingly that the greatest challenge of an Oscar campaign is getting enough voters to see the movies because mm-hmm. that's becoming more and more of the game. And Mass is a perfect example because it's not going to be widely seen. But those who do give it a chance, I think, will be compelled to, to support it. Yeah. 
Uh, another question we got in from um, James S. That's maybe relevant to this question about the the crowd pleaser that gets in there, which is: Has there been any indication that Warner Brothers is campaigning in the Heights, or are they totally focused on Dune and King Richard now? I would say yes, they are totally focused on Dune and King Richard. But it, it is, I think, kind of a shame that In the Heights doesn't get to be part of this conversation because it seemed so well suited, and then it kind of fell apart at the box office, and everyone seemed so eager to move on from it way back in June. It is so disappointing, I think, that that narrative happened for that film because, I mean, I wasn't here yet, but I remember listening to you guys talk about it on Little Gold Men and it was just this, before it came out, and it was just this crowd pleaser that has this diverse cast and just felt so uplifting and is really well done. And to see because of its box office and, um, you know, a little controversy around its casting, it 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 feels like Warner Brothers has decided that they aren't going to be campaigning for it. And I do think that's a real shame. And, you know, I talked to John M. Chu um, after the film came out about sort of reflecting on that experience. And, you know, he, I think, was able to recover from that disappointment by, you know, he believes that he's helping sort of launch, you know, the next generation of stars with his movies. Crazy Rich Asians did that. And and I think in the Heights, a lot of these actors are going on to bigger roles. And and that's a huge opportunity um, for Latinx actors. So uh, I wish they were campaigning for it, but it does seem like they're definitely focused on King Richard and Dune. And, and for good reason. I think King Richard yeah. and Dune are both strong contenders. But yes, mm-hmm. it's uh, I wish it too. Mm. Um, kind of a related question from Rita is, is any chance we see Lim and Juan Miranda exhaustion affect Tick, Tick, Boom? Um, kind of given what happened on In the Heights and then, you know, Hamilton being so popular that whenever anything is popular enough, people are lining up to kind of kick it. Um, and a lot of us have seen Tick, Tick, Boom, and I don't know that we want to talk about it in too much detail, but... I have a lot of, I'm really enthusiastic about that movie. Um, and Rebecca, as you mentioned, I was enthusiastic about In the Heights, so don't take anything I say as gospel. <laughs> but I do wonder if like, you know, him, he's not in it. He's in it, or I guess he's in it very briefly in a cameo. Um, but as a director, like, I do think this might be a chance for him to kind of, you know, establish his artistic credentials without him at the center of it, which I think is probably good for him at this stage. How are you guys feeling about Tick, Tick, Boom? To bring Richard's earlier point up, I mean, you just, the Netflix contenders keep piling on and I yeah. think, I, I, I haven't seen it, but that's my immediate reaction is, is how many films can they give, you know, a dedicated push to. I haven't seen Tick, Tick, Boom either. Uh, I keep hearing good things about it. Um, the trailer made me a little nervous because it seemed like they are kind of retconning that early Jonathan Larson piece into a movie about the creation of Rent, the musical that Jonathan Larson, who died, you know, right when the the show was premiering, um, uh, like that's his most famous work, obviously. And and I think they're trying to kind of meld his biography with Tick, 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 Boom, which is autobiographical to some extent, but it's not really about Jonathan Larson making Rent, you know? So that gives me a little bit of concern as a sort of fan of, musical theater i suppose but i think it's it's shrewd you know in terms of like giving the film that much more relevance and weightiness you know that really could carry it over the line in terms of awards consideration and whatnot um because it won't just seem to exist in this little 90s vacuum it actually like has a broader uh, meaning to it in that like it's about like this nation artist who was taken too soon and you know was about to create this pulitzer winning uh piece of you know genre changing musical theater yeah, I have seen it, and like Katie, I, I'm a fan. I think it's a really strong performance from Andrew Garfield, for sure. And um, I think it does, you know, sort of uh, establish Lynn as a, you know, film director, which I think is an exciting 
change for him. So I think I think he has a chance. I mean, we'll have to see. I, I agree with David. Netflix has a lot to, to juggle here. So but, you know, I think it depends what Lynn does with the press and promotion for the film as well. And, and when more people see it. I think the biggest question is if Tick, Tick, Boom does get Oscar nominations, which presenter do we want to mo- most want to hear say Tick, Tick, Boom? Ooh. You know, like Harrison Ford, that would be good. I always um, go for Harrison Ford in these situations. I, I'm Penelope Cruz. I'm rooting for that. Like, you know, if it gets several nominations in different categories, we could have several presenters each saying that wonderful phrase. So fingers I crossed. Just- I vote Anthony Hopkins doing the best actor <laughs> presentation. I just uh, watched a clip of Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone presenting uh, Robert Duvall's Oscar to him, uh, and that that's just quite a combination of energy. So bring them Ooh, back. I gotta maybe. rewatch. I yeah. gotta rewatch that. No, it's one. It's, a, it's a good one. <laughs> Uh, well, on the musical topic, among the movies that we've talked about that we haven't seen yet is West Side Story, um, which we're just, you know, waiting to see what Steven Spielberg has in store. And basically, Molly just said, what do we think its chances actually are? Rachel Ziegler for actress cinematography. Do we think being a remake of a Best Picture winner will hurt its chances? Um, so that last one, I would say certainly yes. I don't think a remake of a Best Picture winner has ever won Best Picture. That has to be because you know, A Star is Born being the most recent famous example but yeah, like I think the longer we wait to hear about West Side Story, the more nervous we get, right? Yeah. Rebecca, I don't know how you'd characterize this period of uh, of these last unseen contenders. And there seems to be rumors and, and general indications of how each of them will fare, even though no one's seen them. And I will say, I have not seen the film. I have not really heard anything about the film. Uh, but there just does seem to be a general sense that it's not going to be in a big awards contender in terms of the way people talk about it. Um, that means absolutely nothing <laughs> in terms of how it actually will do or how good it actually is. But um, it, it's not one that is talked about in the same breath as, and, and this is partly because, you know, Nightmare Alley comes from a director who won Best Picture with his last movie and Licorice Pizza is from Paul Thomas Anderson who was nominated for Best Picture and Director for his last movie. And so it, it's a different kind of calculation, but um, it's a kind of a weird, it's in a weird state where I, I have no idea what to expect, um, but it hasn't been put on that you know, level of this is a major contender that we have yet to see. Uh, I just want to say before any of you write in that A Star is Born did not win Best Picture. I'm sorry. I knew I knew that the Judy Garland one hadn't anyway. A Star is Born is a remake of a big Oscar favorite movie. Richard, as, as a self-professed musical theater fan just moments ago, uh, how are you feeling about West Side Story? Well, I think that we should hold slots potentially for Ariana DeBose, who plays Anita, a role that won Rita Moreno an Oscar, uh, and for Rachel Ziegler as Maria, just in case, you know. Yeah. Um, I think DeBose probably has a better chance because as big of a role as Maria is, Anita's the flashier, fun one. It is interesting with Ziegler, though, because she, like, has been famous for being Maria in West Side Story now for, like, mm-hmm. two years. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, on Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. But, like, no one has seen the movie still. And so it's, that's a lot of lead up. And so I, I hope for her sake that, like, the movie follows through on that. But, yeah, I just there seems to be a general kind of, like, lukewarm sense of anticipation for that movie for whatever reason. Like, it just people are like, oh, yeah, that. Like, why'd they remake it? Like... You know, it doesn't really feel like a good fit for Spielberg or, you know, obviously the Ansel Elgort stuff has colored the film's profile a bit. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm sort of more on the corny side. Like, I remember tweeting out something when Ready Player One was, you know, about to come out. I was like, why are people being negative? It's going to be good. It's a Spielberg movie, you know. And then I, I was maybe 
not quite right about that. But um, <laughs> but you've been I'm, tweeting I'm, a picture of Mark Rylance in that movie weekly ever since. So well, it has yes, a legacy. I, mean, I am obsessed with the Mark <laughs> Rylance sitting up in a coffin. Um, but I think with West Side Story, my, my thinking is like, it's Spielberg. It's one of the greatest musicals, if not the greatest of all time. Like the performers, um, you know, the who who were aware of are, are good, you know, from from theater work. And, you know, sure, the Ansel thing is a big red flag, certainly. But like everyone else ought to be able to carry the movie uh, enough on their own. And and um, I don't know. I, I have concerns about that movie, just as like West Side Story being the, the first piece of theater that really imprinted in my psyche as a child. But I'm optimistic not even that cautiously so i'm not really sure where this kind of mood about that movie is coming from but it's definitely palpable when you talk to people in the industry right now yeah i think that's true and i i'm also optimistic i mean i i don't know if i've said this before but it's hard i love almost every single movie musical ever so um i'm sure i'll like it but I love an 11th hour Oscar contender surprise, you know, I mean, you think of 1917 or Phantom Thread, all these movies that came out really late in the season. And I felt like had that confidence that they were going to, you know, easily slip into the contender race, Um, even with the late debut. I don't know if West Side Story is that this year. I do think, you know, Nightmare Alley or Licorice Pizza could be that for all of us, but uh, yeah, it has been weird that West Side Story just doesn't have that buzz around it um, and, and has more of a negative cloud circling it, you know, when we talk to people. So I think we just have to wait and see at this point, but I wish they would show it to us already. A, yeah. a, part, of me wonders if, <laughs> a part of me wonders if some of that, like, sort of hedging bets, negative energy has something to do with The Post, which like did get the Best Picture nomination. It, it did, you know, it, it was well represented at the Oscars, but like... It was a late breaking one, like Rebecca It was, was a late breaking one, but it wasn't like... I When I saw that, and granted it was at a very like charged, like first screening at some fancy screening room in New York, I was like, that's going to win Best Picture. Like I really was mm-hmm. like up on that movie. And then the reception to it, both box office and just kind of critically was like a little bit meh. You know, so I wonder if there's a sort of Spielberg kind of knee jerk thing where it's like, oh, like his era's done, like we're, you know, his stuff is so predictably like Oscar bait, like we're not going to fall for it kind of thing. I don't know, especially when you have like this other kind of ragged feel good musical in Cyrano that's going to be coming out right around the same time um, with a lot of heat for Peter Dinklage as, as the title role. I'm wondering if that sort of scrappier made during COVID, they basically kind of took over this town in Sicily. Like, I wonder if that energy, which is not so, um, you know, pre-packaged, was going to come out before the pandemic kind of thing. I, I, I don't know. I just wonder if Cyrano has a better narrative in that. And there's these are two big musicals competing at the same exact time. They are so wildly different as musicals. It's funny to imagine someone being like, well, Cyrano, like, like setting them next to each other. But you're right that they will be compared to each other because it's a season for musicals somehow. Um, all right. Back to questions. Uh, Chloe Howarth wrote in with a, a really lovely series of questions. I'm going to start with the first one. How likely is it for Marie Antoinette, Kirsten Dunst, and Count Axel von Furst and Jamie Dornan to both be nominated for the supporting acting categories? Uh, huge credit for remembering that Jamie Dornan was in Marie Antoinette because we recently rediscovered that, but I certainly did not remember it. I think the answer is yeah, right? Like they're both really likely to get nominated for um, for Power of the Dog and Belfast, respectively. I am. You guys agree? Yeah, I think she's um, basically a lock for a nomination. And in terms of supporting actor, it kind of depends on how the how the wins move for Belfast. You have two contenders there. He's definitely in in the conversation, but uh, Kieran Hines could be a little bit 
uh, of a safer bet. Um, whether it can get two in the race um, remains to be seen. But that category is a bit all over the place, so it, it could very easily just be stacked with um, best picture representing contenders. She had a follow-up question that also goes back to Jamie Dornan, which is, are we seeing potential for a double-double dip in the supporting races for Belfast, where it'd be basically Jamie Dornan and Kieran Hines and Katrina Balfe and Judy Dench over in uh, Supporting Actress? And she, uh, Chloe floats the idea of a SAG Ensemble nomination, which I think is pretty much a guarantee. Um, but what do you guys think are the odds that both sets of Belfast parents and grandparents get in? That I, feels... Yeah, go ahead, Rebecca. No, I think we we're going to say the same thing, that that feels like a lot was that what you were going to say? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say I, that, that sounds like a lot for like whoever's doing that campaign, you know? <laughs> There's not enough people to make that happen. Like Judy and Katriana like duking it out for interview slots. And like, I, I mean, I don't know. It just feels like that would be too much work uh, for the studio. But um, but maybe not. I mean, I, I, I think there's a, a funny chance that it could be like Dornan and Dench. You know, because like Dornan yep. and Balfour getting kind of paired together as our Heinz and, and uh, you know, because they're, they're, you know, younger couple, older couple. But maybe it could be some weird kind of switcheroo uh, in, in that foursome. Kind of kinky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the theme of Bill Faster. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we all read films differently, Katie. I, mean. <laughs> I would say that of the, the meteor of the roles would be. Karen Hines and Katrina Balfe, weirdly. Yeah, I, yeah. Would, I think so, too. Because, like, Jamie Dornan isn't in the movie as much because his character is, uh, you know, working out of the country for a lot of it. And uh, But Karen Hines kind of gets, like, a big hospital scene, and she has this big kind of action scene near the end of the movie. Um, but also, like, Judy Dench getting nominated for a smaller role is far from unheard of. And, you know, the more that, you know, we hear about upcoming movies and the more that, like, potential contenders, like, kind of you know, seem to fade in, in some views, like Belfast is still standing strong. So like if if we're running out of things to fill up a 10, maybe we just start throwing everything at Belfast. I think it's plausible to say that Dornan is the least likely of the four and still definitely could get nominated. That's yes. probably where I am right now. Yeah. And all credit to Jude Hill, the child who is the uh, lead actor in the movie, um, while the adults compete in supporting, you know, the the kids got talent, but that's a that's a rough category this year. I have I have profound respect for the Belfast campaign for putting the lead actor in lead because for movies with kids in the leads, it often does not happen. Yeah, so it's not a whale writers scenario here. If Dornan does get nominated, he better wear some great like knit sweater to the Oscars. You know. Oh yeah. You know. It'll be like a, a little tweak on like the trend of like guys wearing harnesses you know, on the red carpet. like <laughs> <laughs> Cottage core for the red yeah, carpet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Third question from Chloe. Uh, she says, is Johnny Greenwood getting nominated three times for the power of the dog, Spencer and licorice pizza? Um, that would be unheard of. That would be fascinating. Um I don't we don't know a lot about the licorice pizza score and we'll remember that when he has worked for Paul Thomas Anderson before, like with There Will Be Blood, his score was not eligible. So we don't know for sure if that's happening. Um, But Power of the Dog and Spencer both seem like pretty strong contenders for him to me. What do you think, Rebecca? Yeah, I I agree. They are very strong contenders and he's so um, admired that I feel like he he I feel like he could go for two. I think three is is a stretch. It's interesting, again, whether Spencer could hit somewhere like that um, because that score is so, in my opinion, brilliant. But I remember walking out of the Telluride screening and many saying that score was awful. So (laughs) just because of how, um, you know, over the top and operatic it is, uh, uh, it's one that the branch could definitely go for, but it's it's another litmus test for the movie. Yeah, I mean, you think of the Jackie score getting nominated for uh, Mika Levy, which is like very alienating and deliberately so um so yeah. if that's possible many things are possible right 
The year of big swings. Yeah. And like, what more could you want in a, in a score than a big swing, really? What would be the perfect outcome, you know, kind of what we're talking in aggregate of this, you know, whole class of nominations across all categories would be if they were somehow able to balance the big commercial stuff with, with the cool indie stuff, the, the, the Johnny Greenwoods with the, you know, King Richards or the Dunes or whatever, um, to kind of remind you of the breadth of, of the movies on offer, you know, in, in this or any year, hopefully. Um, and so I feel like categories like score or screenplay or whatever are where the Academy can maybe turn away a little bit from um, the, the populist stuff and, and really kind of dig deep on the, on the creative arts part of it. Yeah. If we're, if we're talking about uh, score and, and under the radar contenders, the lost daughter, I think has a very underrated, um, pretty uh, fantastic score so i would who did that one throw that one out uh dinkin hingcliffe who has um, not been nominated before i assume who has not been i don't believe so um and another one is nightmare alley which is interesting because that was going to be alexander desplat uh he had to back out due to another commitment so uh the composer of knives out kind of did a late save on that one and just finished the score last week i believe who is uh ryan johnson's cousin his name is nathan Mm -hmm. johnson that's what i enjoyed that greatly I've changed my mind. I now want to hear Harrison Ford say Dinkin Hinkliff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're all rooting for the Lost Daughters theme for various reasons. I was trying to look up who was the last uh, person to be nominated against themselves in this category. And it was it was last year. It was Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross who were nominated for Soul and for Mank at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's That's definitely right. it's not unheard of. I do think three in one year has not happened before. Um, but, you know, there's always time for something to change. So we didn't get to all of your questions, uh, which is a good problem to have because we have lots of good ones and we will do our best to get to them or text you back or something. And I um, just kind of wanted to close it out with a broad question looking forward a little bit from Michael Roberts, who says, since the Globes are being written off this year, it seems like we're losing a major precursor. How do you see that affecting the race? I'm kind of sad there won't be as many out of left field contenders. I don't know if I agree that there won't be as many out of left field contenders, but I do think the Globes being gone is going to impact things in all kinds of like weird little ways, some of which we can anticipate and some of which we probably don't. But what do you guys think broadly will we lose from the globes not being there to kind of shepherd the conversation as much as it ever did we're gonna lose me explaining to people that the globes are picked by 75 people and not representative (laughs) of the academy which is a significant which is a significant loss (laughs) yeah i I feel like every year after the globes i explain that to my non-industry friends but um I i think you know, I love the Globes because they highlight musicals really well and comedies and give us a few, you know, random nominees. But they also do, like any award show, help with momentum for films that maybe have lost their momentum over the last couple months. Um, so I guess we will lose that. I mean, you know, the Critics' Choice Awards are taking that slot and the Globes are announcing winners in some form that we aren't quite sure of yet. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, I think it's, it's, it's all a momentum game around that time. So, you know, there are some films that get a nice boost from the, from the Globes. How are we feeling about the Critics' Choice Awards filling that slot, especially now that they will not be on a broadcast network, they're sticking on the CW? Yeah, you kind of answered my question Wait, there, sorry. Katie. Uh, <laughs> the, the question, yeah, but that is, that is the problem, is that it doesn't have a big enough uh, TV audience this season to, I think, really take that mantle from the Globes. And given that, I think what we're really losing is uh, the potential for an under-the-radar contender, because the Globes certainly like to to stump for their oddball choices, um, to get a big, widely seen 
uh, televised moment um, that can propel them in the race. I think the conventional wisdom was that Andrew Day really benefited from that Globe win in terms of getting an Oscar nomination for United mm-hmm. States versus Billy Holiday. Also, like the Globes are fun, and <laughs> uh, this year's Zoom catastrophe aside, um, they are usually one of the more enjoyable to watch award shows. Even though, uh, to Rebecca's point, because they are voted on by so few people and, and a random collection at that, uh, they they do not mean much in terms of how they impact the Oscars aside from, you know, getting those big televised moments uh, for, for certain contenders. We should probably add that the Globes are planning to hand out awards this year. Um, and there's, uh, Rebecca, you've written about some kind of confusion about what that exactly is going to mean, but they will be around. Um, we just don't know entirely what that's going to mean yet. West Side Story will get its due. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen comes riding back for glory. <laughs> So now let's go to listen to Cassie DeCosta's interview with Ruth Nega, who is a star alongside Tessa Thompson in Passing. Uh, and again, we've we've talked about this movie. We've talked about her really uh, luminous performance, I think. And uh, I'm really interested to hear more about it in this interview. So let's listen to it. Passing, you know, it's a hyper-personal film for Rebecca Hall, but it also feels like one that because its resonances both in racial identity as well as in literally the appearance of people and how we perceive them. It, it, it feels very a very personal story to anyone who identifies as Black or anyone who identifies as a woman. What was your entry point into connecting both to the themes in this film as well as your character, Claire? Yeah, I mean, totally. It's I feel it's hyper personal for exactly those reasons I mean the thing is is that um literature to me has always been a place where I find refuge but also where I kind of can learn about myself you know where uh where you you can identify with protagonists you can identify you can not identify with them you know it's it's a place where you can sort of try on who you are in order to find out who you are you know and I think that's super important and literature's always been that place and also as a black woman I have found peace actually is the word that comes to mind. I don't know why that's coming to my mind in literature, because for me, it's, it's a ban. It's a, it's a feeling of being seen. It's a feeling of comfort. It's a feeling of community. And whether that's Zora Neale Hurston or uh, Dr. Morrison or Dr. Angelou, um, you know, or indeed Nella, Nella Larson. And I've really felt that with both her books, Quicksand and Passing, you know, so many times, you know, when you put a book down and you have to have a moment for something to sink in or something, or, and then to sort of rise up again after connecting with something inside you. I feel it's like almost a chemical process, like something in that novel has bonded to something inside you and because it's made complete sense. And then it helps me make sense of me and the world and my place in it. And even though a lot of these novels are set in the past, Mm -hmm. that is where I find a lot of, I don't know, I don't know, I find a home there, weirdly enough, you know. Um, And it's not to say I don't find that in contemporary works, but because Nella Larson deals with such specificities of of race and identity, for me, it's very much in her novels where I've been witnessed. Mm. And in passing, it's this idea of, well, I mean, 
clearly it's about moving from one community, which is the black community, into the white community. Mm-hmm. Literally moving, passing, as in there's a death. You know, I kind of feel like passing is the river sticks is always in my brain when I think about mm. passing because it is a journey into sort of an afterlife because you are leaving your previous life behind. You're severing your connections to your family, your community, yourself, you know, your previous self. Um, and so with Claire, it's very much her black community. And the idea of what does that do to yourself? What does that do to your identity? when you are surrounded by people who perceive you as one thing when you're actually not. And for me, it's more about my identity as Ruth. And, you know, I grew up in a lot of different places. And, you know, I think people are sort of confused by my heritage, which is Irish and Ethiopian, because, you know, for a long time it was considered unique and exotic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, exoticism is something that is explored in in passing as well you know and it's really interesting how and I'm not sure how to sort of go about unpacking it but when Claire talks about in a wistful manner about wanting to be with Negroes again to hear them laugh it makes me feel sort of uncomfortable because it's like she's exoticizing her own self and her community, you know, and is that what passing does to someone? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, do we condone that, condemn that? And the interesting thing is, I keep coming back with Anella's novel, is that she does neither. Everything is up for grabs in terms of ambiguity, really. Right. That means the responsibility on the reader or the recipient or the viewer is very much on you. You must do the work um, because it challenges you on where you stand, mm-hmm. how you interpret something, you know, and that's that's quite difficult for some people because a lot of the time, some well, sometimes we do like to have something neatly packed and delivered to us so we can grab it easily and say, oh, this is wrong or right. And, and Nella really um, evades that neatness beautifully, I think. Mm. Is that more liberating for you as an actor, especially because this character, I kind of, you said she, you know, she herself is literally passed from one place to another. She's like a ghost. So did that having that ambiguity kind of help you in a way? Oh, well, it was a lovely deep dive because it was sort of endless opportunities for choices but with that comes the responsibility to make the choices you know and then you think gosh what am I going to do um (laughs) here because you know you want to encapsulate all of them but you also don't want to lessen the impact by doing that do you know what I mean so it's important to actually make choices um from my way in really was to just I spend a lot of time just sitting with my characters daydreaming about them you know and letting them sort of speak to me through my own imagination and impulses, you know. Um, and I find doing that helps me sort of untangle their sort of this ball of wool, you know. But the thing is, once you start unraveling it, it just never stops, you know. I think the thing is with Claire is that the problem is actually with it is the solution because all these conflicting impulses is actually who she is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on a day-to-day basis. She can move through 
joy, fear, anxiety, manipulation, devastating honesty at the drop of a hat. And I think the thing is, is not to be so worried about what strand you're teasing out at that particular time, you know, because mm-hmm. actually it's in the language mm. because Claire is so disarmingly direct a lot of the time. <laughs> in many ways, that's kind of a relief because you're you're not really playing a lie you know because it you could you you could think you might have to play a lie because she is her whole life is a lie really it's based on a lie mm-hmm. but actually weirdly it gives her a freedom and i don't quite understand that still to this day that's why this role is still haunting me you know mm. you know and I, when i watched it for the first time at the new york film festival it's the first time i've actually been surprised by my own choices you know, that was a very weird feeling. I had thought I was getting ready for sort of possibly a destabling life force, you know. And, and, and actually what I saw was several moments of deep vulnerability. And I really wasn't expecting that, you know. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm glad of it. But I think that's the power of this novel, that even in playing with her, I couldn't help but play the ambiguity of every moment. Mm-hmm. And even playing this kind of joyful, vivacious woman, but at her heart, there is a great feeling of loss. Yeah. As anyone else, really. No, I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about this film or my experience of watching it is that it's one of those films where you feel like you're almost, you're grasping at something and it's really hard to know what you're trying to hold on to. But that, I mean, to me, that that was something I wanted to ask you about. It mirrors to me personally, the idea of race, which is to say, we, we know it, we know what it is, but it's also, it's made up and it's not real. So the, the, the film is, is it touches that directly because on one hand, she's in front of her white racist husband making these very direct jokes that Rini understands, but her husband doesn't. And on the other hand, she's really hurting her friend Rini in this way that she doesn't really understand. So I, I, I couldn't help but think about, you know, the other film that you did about the interracial entanglements of, you know, especially in America, loving and that character you play, who obviously is so, so different than Claire. It's against the backdrop of race, all of these. Exactly. Blooming. And it it is, it's about race and it's not about race because how can something about race be about race if it doesn't exist? Mm -hmm. But it's about the fact that we have felt the need as society to construct race Mm -hmm. in order to control, to maintain essentially a status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the tricky thing because, you know, when we're when we're talking about it with Tessa and I and Rebecca, it's so funny because it it is about race, but also it's sort of interrogating the actual ridiculousness of race, the, the idea that this concept that is actually phantom, it's a phantom concept, yet it's become part of the fabric of modern society. I mean. It was legislated into law. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the Racial Integrity Act, such a misnomer, but you know the fact that racial and social mores that were sort of invented during slavery, um, and that we tried to reconstruct 
during the period of Reconstruction, but then it was immediately deconstructed with the Black Codes, Plessy versus Ferguson, and and then Jim, Jim Crow, which was taking the unspoken social mores and actually legislating, mm-hmm. making them into law, and how that directly affects individuals, their identity, who they are, their hopes, their dreams, their ability to live well, their ability to stay alive. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, things like the, the, that idea has, has always, I've always believed the personal is the political. And for me, that is why. Mm-hmm. For me, I just can't extricate the two. Right. Because if if laws are circumscribing an individual's right to live freely, how can it not be personal? Yeah, you see that in the fear that Rini has at the beginning of the film, this silent, almost silent passage where she is passing, but herself has a more tenuous hold on the ability to pass, right? She feels that, ooh, it can be noticed in a moment. But it also made me think of her housekeeper, Zulena, she is obviously a black woman. She's a dark-skinned black woman. And how when we meet her and she's in this periphery, we start to see the ways that Claire and Rini and how they interact and live in the world is this completely different experience, both in terms of class and in terms of color. How did you feel about playing out that dynamic? Especially because Claire's she's, you know, she refuses to have a black maid at home. She kind of she's refused this proximity and now she has to come up directly against it well the, the the refusal is interesting because isn't it because it's i mean i shouldn't say poor old john Ballou, but <laughs> poor old john Ballou. i mean he really and i'm saying that not because i feel sorry for him but i pity him um and pity is for me the worst thing you can feel for any other human being i hate it <laughs> <laughs> so emasculating is it and, and and sort of robbing someone of power for me because what an idiot he she doesn't want a black maid because she's maintaining a secret and i the the not wanting a black maid is just is a liability for claire um and of course she he sees it as you know um an obvious well it's a compounding of her hatred of black people um but yeah it was tricky because you know with zulina um nella's sort of weaving in the class thread to the narrative. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it feels very much like Rini is uneasy with this distinction. You feel kind of, she doesn't really know how to place herself, you know? If we're talking about equality of the races, then how, what about equality of the classes? Like, how do you treat a maid? How do you speak? And you see that kind of uncomfortable tension with them. And yet, you know, Claire waltzes in talking about, oh, I would love a maid. Where did you get one? And how does she cook? And all this sort of patronizing mm-hmm. comments that is another, you know, way of sort of making one, Nella is so adept at making her audience feel uncomfortable, um, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, and yet in many ways, she eschews the class distinction and just hangs out with her and connects with her. As a human being, and I, and, and I think for me, and I'm not sure if this is the correct interpretation, it's about Zulina sees the the integrity in Claire that that yes, she might be you know dramatic and sort of like no um, filter, yet that's who she is at her essence, and she's generous enough to share her essence 
with people. Whereas Rini, I think there's a kind of hesitancy because we're hesitant with people who are hesitant to share with us, aren't we? There's a sort of mutual mistrust there. Um, and so, again, it's Nella, for me, addressing these weird sort of social constructs that we've made up to make life easier, but actually they're distancers, you know? Mm -hmm. They don't. They're actually things that sort of um, impede connection. Right. And I, that's how I felt it. Yeah. And, you know, what was it like to explore these ideas, not only with Tessa Thompson, but also with Rebecca, who herself isn't Black, she's white, but she has as well, she has a, a mixed race Black grandfather. What was it like to kind of discuss these ideas amongst yourself and figure it out both in terms, you know, you're not American, but you have an experience of, of race that is particular to where you're from. And so what was it like to kind of share these different, very differing experiences and, and yeah, figure it out together? Yeah, I mean, it was really freeing, you know, and, you know, in, in our countless discussions, because we didn't actually have any rehearsal time because we had no money. <laughs> <laughs> that simple. Yeah. Um, and but we did have countless conversations and I found it such a safe space to talk about race, class, gender, all of the myriad ideas and themes in Nella's book, um, really honestly, I think when it comes to, you know, important themes that are kind of hot points now, people are very frightened about saying the wrong thing, you know, um, and they're frightened maybe of their own belief systems because they're frightened that it might not fit in with the current narrative. And usually that's what happens is that political correctness gets gets the blame and I'm always a bit like weary of that because I'm thinking you know god that's a whole other subject you know I don't know who invented political correctness but all it is is like for me anyway it's like don't be a dick don't be offensive right and now it's used as is this sort of evil sort of uh, I don't know, like censoring, censorious force yeah. that is making people sort of curtailing people's freedom. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you're just that's a cop out, you know. But I do understand that people need spaces to sort of explore where they are in terms of their beliefs so they can speak freely and sort of maybe change perspective, maybe listen to one another. And I don't know, I just feel that this space is a, a space where I felt I could do that because in Nella's book, there is some really interesting sort of, um, she places us in some, in a dilemma sometimes because for example, Rini, she's a, an upstanding citizen of her community you know she's a great mother a great wife and uh she's intelligent and she's a race woman and she's you know it's all about uplifting the race and these are all great qualities um but on further interrogation Nella is saying I feel like <laughs> let's caveat that that we also have to allow ourselves to interrogate where that can be fallible you know, where the demands in ourselves mm -hmm. and what we believe in can be restrictive to ourselves, you know, and in, in fulfilling all these roles and these duties, which are great, you know, 
that she's somehow sacrificing her own identity, her own desire, her own impulses. And should that be the case? You know, and 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 for me, that kept, I kept coming back to, you know, black women sacrificing a lot mm. for for the cause, for the world, you know, fulfilling a role for everybody else and not having enough space and time to fulfill the role for themselves. And with Claire, we have the embodiment of someone who does that entirely. She sort of swings the other way. I mean, she, she, you know, by her own admittance, she will trample on anyone to get what she wants. And, you know, it's interesting, even when, even when she says it, there isn't a sense of defiance there. There's a sense of sorrow that actually she has to do that in order for some tiny piece of self-preservation. And so there's a cost to, to living in these binaries for both women. And it's not what you expect. Mm. And I just love that, that, you know, what we're working towards Sometimes it's just smoke and mirrors, whether it's contributing to our community or whether it's heeding our personal needs and desires. You know, it's um, it's a tricky path. Going kind of just more to the the visual sensation of, of watching the film, you know, obviously, you know, it, it it's shot in, in black and white, but your experience of being in it was in color, obviously. So what, what was that like to see? I, I'm thinking especially of that first scene where you and Tessa Thompson encounter each other as Rini and Claire, and Claire sees Rini first, and Tessa Thompson's character, Rini, thinks she's being made out, you know, found out as, you know, trying to pass but in fact, she's just seen her old friend. What was it like to see that on screen and, and see this really stark whites in that cafe yeah, scene? Because, yeah, well, it was amazing. I mean, uh, first of all, the, the film, Rebecca's made a beautiful, lush, yummy film. <laughs> I mean, it's stunning. And we talked about a lot, the abstract. And to me, you know, in the film, it's to do with, you know, really illuminating the mise-en-scene to an extent where it's so white, it's like dazzling, uh, blurring the edges in some scenes, you know, having your aural senses sort of assaulted at different times by loud noises or just soft noises. Um, it's a very sensual film, you know, and, 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 and that's, for me, it's so beautiful because, you know, you think, oh, that's what Irene's experiencing it's like a dream, this film. It's like a really sensual, sad, beautiful moment. After it, you think, did that really happen? Mm. You know, and you and you do feel with, and, and Tess's face at the end, I remember thinking, you know, she's kind of thinking that, did that really happen? I think, and then you think, maybe they're all thinking that, did that really happen? Did this, did this sort of blonde mass of energy really come into their lives and then just disappear? And what are they left with? And they're going to be haunted by their memories of her. And that to me is, that's, you know, that's what you want to come out of a film feeling like all your senses have sort of been fed, mm -hmm. you know? And I really do feel that. I felt that when I, when I came out of that film, you know? I think, you know, what's really interesting is um, when I was watching it, I was thinking, because I, I, a lot of it, you know, I wasn't obviously there for it. Tessa's a lot of Tessa's scenes on her own or with 
Andre. And, and I just remember thinking, this is one of the best depictions of an unraveling of a woman mm. ever. Because the great thing about it is, is that Rebecca and Tessa have wormed their way into your psyche so far before the breakdown of Rini that you, like Rini, sort of aren't aware that she's having a breakdown until she's in the midst of it. And you think, oh, my God, this is what it's like. You don't know until it's kind of too late. Mm -hmm. Well, that's extraordinary. And I thought it was, Tessa does it so beautifully because you're destabilized. You feel like her. You know, when she's she's always dropping things and her perspective is changing and her her vision even betrays her when there's a scene where she hears talking and Claire and um, Brian laughing and she sees them quite close, but actually when she does see them and as they really are, they're actually quite far apart. Mm-hmm. And so you as a viewer are sort of embodying Rini's doubt, doubt of herself and her world, of the people around her. And that's how... You know, I mean, it's quite clear. I was quite clear. Rebecca psychologically understood Nella's book wholly. Mm. That just made it so. That was proof. In the proof is in the pudding because you think, wow, I feel it. I feel the uncertainty of what it must be like to have you to be sort of disarmed so thoroughly that you really don't know. Where is it? What's up and what's down? Mm-hmm. One thing that I notice a lot in your in your acting is you have an intense way of listening, and I think you know every actor wants to seem like they listen, obviously, and that's a great performance. That's what makes for a great performance. But the way that you hold your head, I've always really noticed in in all of your films. And I wondered with Claire, she's so theatrical, um, but she also really listens and really notices what's happening around her. You, you, you see her seeing a lot. How do you create that sense of presence in your characters? And what are you kind of looking to do physically, like gesturally um, in a character like Claire? Um, Claire in French is light. And it was so interesting because for me, Claire has always been a lighthouse. And whenever that gaze is on, you know, that powerful gaze of a lighthouse where it's so bright that you're sort of blinded by it and then it disappears and the relief is palpable, but also you're thinking, but I'm in the dark now and I kind of miss the light. But there's no, you don't have a choice. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. And for that was kind of my inspiration for Claire, you know. Mm. And you know, you know that feeling when someone with charisma is just, as focusing all on you and you you feel lifted off your feet almost by them. I kind of, that's what I wanted to embody because it's quite clear that that's what Claire does in the novel, you know, everywhere she goes, whether you like her or not, whether you're enraptured by her or you're sort of repelled by that brilliance of light, you can't help but by be seduced by it. Mm. And, and, and that's, and you know, whenever I think of people I'm impressed in and I admire, it's the quality of their listening that I realize is what's so enrapturous about them. They mm. make you feel like you are fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and I, even if you're not quite clearly not, <laughs> but you, they make you feel like that. And that's what's, that's what's so seductive about Claire mm. is that when her gaze is on you, 
you feel like the most delicious crumpet in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and for me, and for me, that was sort of my my way in for her. But also, also fueling that underneath is that when you pass, and this is because this is from you know research into passing, is that you are in perpetual danger of being found out. You're living in fear of being found out because you don't know what's going to happen to you. And through the ages, I mean, you could be murdered. Mm-hmm. You would certainly be booted out of your job. Uh, you would lose friends. You would lose family. You would lose loved ones. You know, I mean, that is a that is a huge cloud, dark, dark cloud ho- hovering above people who make that decision to pass, and that's a very terrifying place to be. And in order to survive that, one must be alert at all times. And so, part of that with Claire is her alertness is her survival technique. I mean, and it's quite, my favorite scene is for Claire is when she speaks about not being safe as she's walking into the road. (laughs) And I, because she doesn't feel safe, she's she's never safe. And that's that's the reality of people who passed, worrying that you were being found out. And it's a very isolating place to be, you know? And that's what I, her need to be around her community again. It isn't, it isn't, for me, it definitely isn't some sort of, um, you know, that kind of, what do they call the trips up to Harlem that white people would make and, you know. Oh, yeah. That kind of, kind of it's like a trip to the, the zoo almost, yeah. you know what I yeah. mean? It's a really nasty, bad taste in the mouth, but for Claire, it's not. It's She is so isolated by this lie that she's living. Granted, it's a self-exile, but I'm not sure if it's a chosen exile, you know. Mm. I'm not sure. I don't mm. think it is, personally. It seems like it is, but when... When your options are limited and your life is, as I say, so circumscribed by ridiculous laws, what options are you left with? Minimal. And so isolation and the fear of being found out are very real, two very real things for, for Claire. And, 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 and I think her drive, her need, her passion, her sort of, uncomfortable invasion of Irene's space you know she kind of she's not in many instances you do see Irene sort of backing away because she kind of you know that kind of unspoken respect of so Claire that's out the window with Claire she's in your face immediately um you know at one point she's following her up and down the stairs in some sort of comic comic yeah. um, um keystone cops moment yeah and 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 also with the gaze, there's a with Claire's gaze. Like you say, if I wanted it to be sort of, um, I don't want it to be insidious, but I wanted it to be super disarming. To wow. me, this, listening is acting. I mean, I know we play it, say it all the time, but I mean, how are you supposed to act when you when you can't when you don't listen? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. And you can't act listening because then you won't hear anything. That does it for this week's show. Um, you can find us all at Vanity Fair, including a uh, rundown of the international feature submission list, as we mentioned before, and lots of other coverage of the awards race. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard Rylaws and Rebecca Becca M Ford and David David Canfield ninety seven. And if you want to be featured in our mailbag or just talk to us otherwise, sign up to text with us at subtext. Join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 718-550-2059. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best choice for next year's Oscar host goes to Richard Lawson. 
Mark Rylance sitting up in a coffin. <laughs>